Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I've run out of everything, so no more caro syrup or anything else. Um, I heard this week about a woman who was 84 who had been widowed for several years. And uh, finally, at the instigation of her two grown daughters, she agreed to go out on a date with a gentleman from her senior complex who was approximately the same age, about 85. Uh, he came to the door with flowers and chocolate, dressed in a very, very nice suit, which duly impressed the mothers and daughters. And uh, finally, it was time for them to leave, and he apprised them that he was taking their mother to a very nice restaurant on the other side of a fairly sizable city, and uh, they might be a bit later because of the distance and travel. And so they left at around 6 o'clock, and to their surprise, their mother walked in the door at 8 o'clock at night. And she seemed quite upset. And so the daughter said, Mom, what, what's the deal? Why are you back so early? And why are you upset? And she said, well, I had to slap the guy three times. And they said, wait, was he fresh with you? Because now they're getting upset. Was he inappropriate? She says, no, I kept slapping him to find out if he was still alive, but he kept falling asleep on me. Well, uh, I was reminded this morning of Paul's admonition to us in Ephesians where he says, awake, O sleeper. So let's be awake and aware of that which God wants to say to us today. Would you open up to Colossians chapter 3? Colossians 3, if you don't have a Bible, you can just look at the screens, stare at your phone, your iPad, how many of you actually still have Bibles? I mean, actual Bibles. You guys make me happy. Thank you. Isn't there something about the feel of the pages? You ever do your devotions and just sit there and rub the pages? I know it sounds creepy, but there is something about his word that is so amazing. And we get to have it and to touch it. Colossians chapter 3. We're not going to do a lot of verses, just a couple, uh, but I do want you to see them today. I'm going to do something a little bit different. Colossians 3.1 says this, and I'm reading in the New King James Version, for those of you that are in the wrong translation. Um, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. I, I like, again, I grew up with the King James, forgive me, but I, I still like it. Set your affection on things above not on things of this earth, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Um, One of the things that has happened for me uh, in this past week especially, uh, I've had the opportunity because of the warmer weather to do my walks outside, which I really prefer. Uh, And I tend to take a while at that. Uh, A good walk is two and a half, three hours. I like that. It's hot out. You come back, you're drenched in sweat. It's just like the best. But one of the things that I have become so aware of this week is the fact that we are weird people and that we live in that which is called the border country. Um, if you take a trip, uh, I don't know, did you guys drive here? Okay, if you drive here, to like if you're 
uh, or, or let's say like Karen and I are going to go on a vacation and we're going to drive down to Myrtle Beach. We come to a place on Route 15 as we're heading south, which says you are now leaving New York State. Okay, you, you, that's, it's an actual line. You're done. No more New York State. The weird thing is you drive another quarter of a mile before you see a sign that says, Welcome to Pennsylvania. One of two things is true. Either Pennsylvania doesn't like you until you've been there for a while, which I don't think is probably true. I think they're glad that you're there. Or more likely, I think the truth is, that quarter of a mile is what is called a border country. It's a buffer zone. And one of the things that I have become very, very much aware of in my own heart and life is that we live in that border country. We are not of this world. But we're still here. We're of another world, but we're not quite there yet. So it's like here and now and there and then. Yes now, but not quite. It's just kind of like this weird dynamic goes on in us. We are citizens of another land, but we live here. We, we have the sense that we can feel and touch and see this world. We see one another clearly. But do you know there's another world on the other side of the veil? That is, according to Paul, that other world is more real than this world. Because he says to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, while we look at the things which are seen, there are things that are unseen going on around us, and the truth is the things which are seen are temporary. They're passing away. Everything about you, you know, all that money you spent on that wardrobe, it's going to be gone. You know that new car that you had to spend $40,000 on? It's going to rust and fall apart, and it won't take all that long. Paul says all this stuff that you can see is temporary. But there are other things that you can't see which are eternal. And those are the things that really matter. We live as citizens of that world. You, you can't see it well. We have to train our eyes to see into the things of the Spirit. But because this world seems so real, we call that world, or C.S. Lewis actually coined the phrase, I believe, he calls that world the shadowed world. But the truth is, in his writing, he makes a clarification. He says, no, this is the shadow land. That's the real world. Everything here is temporary, while the invisible world is eternal. And with that in mind, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 and in Colossians, we need to be mindful of that other world. We need to have our affections, our heart, set on that world, not on this world. Now, would you turn over just a couple of pages to Philippians chapter 4? Philippians 4. It's a weird dynamic, by the way, just as an aside. When as a preacher, as a pastor, you stand up front and you say, okay, would you all turn to Philippians 4? And everybody just turns and stares at the screen. Uh, just it's off-putting. Philippians 4.8 says this, Finally, brethren, having said all that he had said previous, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. 
And the things which you have learned and received and heard from and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. He tells us that we need to be a, a kind of people who think along a certain line. And that was really the exhortation that I heard several times this morning, both in song and through that which others had shared that they felt like God had just impressed upon their heart. That we need to be mindful that there's more going on around us than what we can see with our natural eyes. We need to be a kind of people who think about the things that that world thinks about. He says, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, think on those things. Meditate on those. Don't spend all your time ruminating about all the stuff that you can't control and that you don't like, that bothers you. We need to think about the things of God. Now, that's kind of like an introduction to what I want to say this morning. Um, how, how many of you remember that last Sunday I talked to you about a very famous Christian saint? Do you remember who that was? Lord, forgive them. Oh, Jesus. His name was Inigo Lopez. <clears throat> People are different. I don't know. How. It's like I have this problem. My wife sends me down to the store to buy three items. I get to the store and I text her back and I say, I know you told me to come to the store and to buy an item, but I can't remember what it is. She said, no, I said three things and here they are. I can't remember that kind of stuff. I just don't. But I remember sermons. What's wrong with you people? <clears throat> Inigo Lopez, who became known as St. Ignatius of Loyola. We talked about his life, how uh, he had aspirations that were completely separate from anything to do with God. He wanted to be famous. He wanted to be rich. But in the Battle of Pamplona, a uh, cannonball, hit his legs, destroyed him. And while he was convalescing from that time, which was fairly lengthy, he had nothing to do but to read. And so the only book that was available to him in that particular facility was a Bible. He began to read the Bible, and he had a significant conversion experience that changed his whole life. And one of the things he discovered during his convalescence was that when he took time to think about the things of God, when he paid attention to God all around him, when he thought God kind of thoughts, his emotions came in line with it. He began to feel better about life. He had peace and he had joy. But when he began to think about negative things, that, things that he didn't like, his pain or the doctors or the nurses and how they weren't caring for him the way he wanted, he found that he began to struggle with issues like depression and discouragement and even despair. And he said his belief was that every Christian has a fight within them. The fight is to go one of two directions. One is towards desolation, he called it. The other is toward consolation. Desolation, desolation, the word desolation, literally, if you break it down into its component parts, means without the sun. You, you find yourself living without God, the Son of God in your life. Consolation, console, means with the Son. So that's kind of the direction. And, and I think those are kind of like good lessons for us. Now, 
just so that you know it, because apparently you guys care so much about St. Ignatius. Um, <laughs> you guys. I'll get beyond it. It's all right. Jesus, help my heart. Help my heart. Um, St. Ignatius uh, went on in his studies. He, he wanted to actually enter the ministry, and so he, he went for his master's degree. And one of the things he discovered in the whole process was that all of the major theological literature of that day was written in Latin, and he didn't know Latin. So at the age of 32, get this, at the age of 32, he entered Latin grammar school with seven-year-olds so that he could learn Latin, so that he could study the theologies of that day and be a better servant of God. As with all training, training takes time. Fourteen years after his conversion, he finally got his Master's of Divinity. And then he applied to go forward for his doctorate, but he was turned down because by this point they felt he was too old and he had too many physical infirmities. So he began to gather together with scholars of his day just so he could learn from him, so they could talk together. Well, they began to recognize a deposit of God's grace within St. Ignatius. I shouldn't say, at that time he was just called Ignatius. It was many years later that Pope, Pope Paul III actually canonized him. Um, but ultimately, he began to meet with this group, and they saw the grace of God that was upon his life, and they said, we, we kind of like this gathering, this community. We like getting together to talk about God. And so they began to call themselves the Friends in the Lord. That was the name of their group, the Friends in the Lord. Over time, it became so large a group, we were talking about like a 1,000 people wanted to be a part of this, that ultimately, at their encouragement, Ignatius went before Paul, and Paul actually accepted them as an official order of the Catholic Church, and he actually called them, at that point in time, Jesuits. And many of you have heard of the Jesuit works around the world. Uh, some of them have been a part of humanitarian aid all around the world, bringing the gospel. Uh, I, I was just with a friend who is an, a missionary from Africa, uh, he was with us just recently, and he said he watched a film on the plane called Silenced, and that film was about two Jesuits priests who went to Japan to bring the gospel to Japan and the work that they did there. So Ignatius was a part of this order called the Jesuits. They have universities that are still around the world, many famous works that are there, but that's, that's all history. Um, but I, I knew that some of you, because you were just enamored with Ignatius, would want to know that. Um, <clears throat> I actually learned about Ignatius uh, from a friend of mine who is one of the men I most uh, admire in the Lord. Uh, he was one of the teachers at a, a seminary program that I took in Ohio at a brethren seminary. Uh, but he, he just loves to read the old saints because he said, I know that he said as evangelical Christians, as uh, perhaps even Pentecostals, we look down upon uh, some things within the Catholic ranks. But he said the truth is some of those saints had significant encounters and walks with God that we can learn from. And so he was the one who introduced me to this. I was listening to the podcast and I thought, well, what I'm going to do today is I want to talk about something that St. Ignatius um, did in helping to disciple the people who became the Jesuits or the friends in the cross, the friends in Christ. Uh, these are uh, things that he put in place. Now, his background was very much military, so he was very regimented, and some of you would appreciate that. 
But he started and demanded of all of his acolytes something that is called the prayer of St. Ignatius. I'm not going to take time to go through all of that. But there is one part of it that I think is important that I want to make sure that uh, you guys understand. And I think it might actually be helpful to you. And I think it's even in line with some of the things that we heard this morning as exhortations from the Lord. So one portion of the prayer of St. Ignatius is called the prayer of examen. The prayer of examen. And there are um, five different elements of the prayer of examen that I want to actually go over with you very briefly. As I said, this is going to be a little bit different. But I think this has uh, within it the uh, foundation roots that would be good for us to hear and even practices that I believe would be beneficial to us in our own walk. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So often we get so preoccupied and worried about what's happening around us. Um, we, we worry about our past. We worry about our future. Uh, we got stuff in our past baggage that we still carry around. And then we look towards the future and we're worrying about our kids and our grandkids. We worry about this world that's going to hell in a handbasket and the Democrats and the Republicans are tearing it apart. The Muslims are taking over the world. I love what uh, uh, this brother who I met with on Wednesday said at one point. He might not have said these exact words, but this is the thrust of what he was saying. He said the amazing thing for him, he's in Germany now, by the way. Uh, he left uh, Tanzania and he's now ministering in Germany. But he said the amazing thing to him was this. While he was in Africa, there were quite a few Muslims in the area in which they were, but they had very little interaction. He goes to Germany He's, uh, uh, he has his doctoral level in biology. While in Germany, he's written a book called Reformation 1, Reformation 2, and now he's working on a book called Genesis. But while in Germany, he said the Muslims are fleeing the Muslim nations and coming to Europe, coming to Germany, and they already know that Islam doesn't work, and they're coming to him. And I thought about that this week. You know, we complain so much about the Muslims and the Islam faith and all of that. And I understand. I really do. But I think it's an amazing thing that God's actually brought them to our shores where we can have some impact upon their lives. We have an opportunity to be a witness to them. But in the busyness of all of that, in the worry about all the things that's going on, I think it's possible for us to miss what God's doing right now in this present moment. It's possible to get so involved in your past and so worried about the future that you can't meet with God right now. You got some, I mean, even on a Sunday, you're so worried about lunch that you can't even take time to listen to what God might be saying to you right now. Uh, that, that busyness, that hurriness, just trying to survive is what the prayer of examen was intended to actually battle against. So, I want to give it to you. There's actually five points real quick. Uh, I, I won't take long, I, I don't think, with any of them, but I, I want you to get them. Number one, the first, I, these are my wording, by the way, not his, because anything that was written in that day, how, how many of you have ever read anything by Jonathan Edwards? Do you realize that some of the titles of the works that Jonathan Edwards wrote are longer than some books today? It was the same during this day. So if I give you his points, his points would be longer than my whole message. That's just the, the, uh, the introduction to the point. Point number one, it just goes on and on. And on. So I've reworded it in my thing. So my, one, my number one is this, retrospective. Retrospective. What Ignatius asked his followers to do was this. Take a very specific period of time 
preferably a 24-hour period, the last 24 hours, although he would allow you to go up to even a week, but preferably in the last 24 hours, and ask the Holy Spirit to bring to remembrance those things, great and small, with which God has blessed you in that time. In other words, what he's saying is, become mindful of God's activity in your life, that God's actually involved. I could stop there. That'd be enough. That would be a good thing for every one of us to become more aware of God, wouldn't it? To be able to say, I see God's thumbprint upon this thing in my life. I see God's handiwork here in that situation. Become more aware of God in this time period. And again, he said, you know, if you have to, if you're really somehow just struggling, go a whole week, but try to do it in the last 24 hours. And by the way, he required that they do this every single day. So every single day, you're supposed to look back at the last 24 hours and say, God, what were you involved with? And not just what was I aware of, that's good, but what did I miss of your engagement in my life? where you want me to be more aware of you. Now, there's a twofold purpose to this particular one. Under number one, there's twofold thing to it. The first part of it is to become more aware of God's activity in your life. It, this is like where Paul says in Romans 8.28, Behold, all things work together for good. This is where you become aware of the all things, not just the big God things or even the good things, but that God's actually at work in all things. God can use all things in your life for his glory. You do know that, right? Including, by the way, the hard things. Sometimes those things that you are so upset about might actually be God. I know that that's not popular among Christians. That's not popular, especially among Pentecostals who believe that we can name and claim anything we want. But the truth is, God sometimes uses that flat tire. He sometimes uses stuff in your life to do something inside of you or around you. Uh, you hear stories all the time about people who were driving down the road and they were so frustrated because the traffic was so slow and they, they finally thought they would make it through, but then the red light came and they stopped. And then they pull forward and they go about a quarter mile. And if they had gone through the light, they would have been involved in the accident where they saw the semi hit this tractor just up the road recently. You hear stories like that. Well, how many times is God involved in your life in the things that you don't think are good, but they really are? They're God's mercy to you. He says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. So let me ask you just, what kinds of things do you think are beautiful? What kind of things do you take note of? Just tell me. Flowers. What? <laughs> Thank you so much. Babies. So <laughs> okay, that's a mother of a baby. <laughs> Sleeping babies. What else? What? Sunsets. Family. What he is saying is that God's involved in all of that. That's good. See God involved in beautiful landscapes. And, and uh, I was recently, I was, on my, I was in a hurry. I was going out. I was going to jump in my car. I, I'm walking out the doors right out here. I go out the doors. I get to my car. I open the door. I get in. And then I stop for a second. I look. I don't know if you've noticed it. Maybe you did. There are some beautiful flowering bushes in front of the church. Did you notice them? How many times do we just stop and say, God, you are amazing. You are magnificent. I, I mean, 
I'm the kind of guy, I, I grew up on a small farm and we grew uh, all of our own vegetables. We never ate anything that wasn't off the farm other than my dad liked sale and hot dogs, so we'd go get those. Other than that, everything on the farm, we either grew or we killed. We raised and we killed it. We did all of that. I can grow vegetables. If you want potatoes, I can grow potatoes. But I have a gift. I have a real gift of killing every flower that I ever plant. So when we want flowers in front of our house, I say, I will buy the flowers. I will transport the flowers. I will stand beside you and talk to you. But I don't want to touch the flowers because I'll kill them. So when I look at those flowers, I think, God, this is amazing. I don't even know if anybody did anything this year. Or maybe they just, I don't know. We can see God in those kinds of things. But have you ever thought about looking for God in the ordinary things around you? Because God is extraordinarily ordinary. God loves to take the ordinary and breathe his life into it. Sometimes we're so busy looking for the big stuff of God that we miss the little stuff that's all around us. Things that matter in life that are his handiwork. God doesn't always bless us with huge things. You know, we pray for these big things. Sometimes God just blesses us with little things, like the fact that you actually woke up today. How many of you took time to say, thank you, God, that I'm alive? Thank you, God, that I can breathe today. Um, we, in our very first church, um, we had a, oh, I'm sorry, no, it's not true, it's the second church. Um, we had a man in our church who uh, just struggled with emphysema. Every breath was a battle. It was so hard. It wasn't because oxygen didn't go in. He just couldn't process the oxygen right. And it was, it was heartbreaking to watch Claire fight for every breath. We have that here in our own church. Dear brother who struggles with it. And so when you are struggling for every breath, when you're actually able to have a moment or two where it feels like, oh, that's a normal breath. You don't take it for granted at all. Thank you, God, that I can breathe. You put money into the offering, and you say, oh, yeah, I just do that every week. It's just we got to do it because that's what you do as a Christian. You give your tithe. You give your offering. God enabled you to do that. And also, God put it in your heart that you would be a giver like he is a giver. Those are not small things. A big part of Ignatius' prayer is to find God in the everyday things. But the second part is this. It's not enough just to see it. We have to give thanks for it. Give thanks for all of the blessings of God in your life, both great and small. It's not enough just to say, yeah, I noticed it. Uh, Karen and I <coughs> last year went to Florida on vacation. I don't know how many of you have ever been to Florida on vacation uh, or live there. Um, we went, uh, which we like, we went to the West Coast, and we went for a reason. Every single day, we were busy with our day, you know, like I'd get up, I'd do my workout, and I'd come back, uh, we'd sit out at the pool, I'd read, because to me, vacation is about just like three things. It is about working out in the heat, it is about reading, and it's about eating. What else is there to do? That's vacation. So uh, we, we were busy in our days then. I mean, I mean, between workouts and reading and eating, we were busy. But what we did is we made sure that every night that was at all possible, which I think it was every night but like one, every night we ended up 
at the beach or on a pier so that we could watch the sunset. How many of you have ever seen a sunset on the West Coast? On the West Coast. It is different than anywhere else. I promise you it is. The colors are astonishing. We would get there, and we, we were uh, at one point at uh, Clearwater Beach, and they have a nice pier there with all kinds of activities, and we had eaten at one of the little restaurants there. And then you can tell, it's okay, it's about time for sunset. Everybody stops what they're doing. They stop eating all of it. Everything stops, and they start making their way to the pier. Everybody, I mean, you have to find, you, you're, yeah, it's not, yeah, it is. It's a little rude. But you push people aside to make room on the pier for you. Everybody stands there and we watch the sun go down. In every little increment, there's different colors that fill the sky. And get this though, when it would get done, when the sun would finally reach its base where it had gone down beyond the horizon, do you know what would happen? Everybody began to clap. Everything in me wanted to yell out, who are you clapping to? I hope not the sunset. I hope you clap to the God who caused it to happen. It's not enough just to notice. We have to give thanks for it. Surely, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord shall fill all the earth. That's what that's about. To see His glory and to give Him thanks for it in all of the things. This uh, focus that Ignatius encouraged in his people is to stop the natural devolution into desolation and to begin to help us to live in consolation. Another way you can think about it would be this. Um, have any of you um, gone looking for something that you knew was in that drawer? You know it's there because you put it there and no one else would have touched it. You know it's in there someplace. And so you open the drawer and you look and you push things around and there's nothing... I was just doing it the other day. I knew for a fact that I had put my, whatever it's called, the thing that holds your glasses up while you're working out because you sweat so much, they fall down. What, what's that called? Strap. Thank you. Is that the best you got, Kayla? There's some kind of name for them. No, it's not a bandana. Anyways, I knew I had put it back in the drawer. And I looked and I couldn't find it. And I looked some more and I couldn't find it. And I began to take things out of the drawer. I'm taking stuff out. I knew I put it right there beside my chair so it would be there when I wanted it the next morning. I'm going through thought. It's called rummaging, by the way. You rummage through your stuff. So what I thought about this week is what Ignatius was suggesting is that we actually go rummaging with God. We know his activity is there somewhere. We just got to find it. We know it's there. Let's find what it is. So that was number one. Number one was retrospective. Number two. This one you're going to love. This one is called repent. Repent. This is where we ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us where we have been failing to live out of the daily, moment-by-moment -moment awareness of His presence and, even more, where we fail to live out of who we really are in Him. It's recognizing, God, the very fact that I have to go back and do this means... I'm not really good at this. I've failed at being aware of your presence. I failed of remembering who you called me to be. 
to walk in communion with you. You know the old song we used to sing when we first became Christians back in, oh man, 1975 it was for me. Um, December of 75. It says, and he walks with me and he talks with me. You remember? Yeah. And, okay, stop singing. Stop, stop, stop. Um, this is where we recognize that's what I was made for. And I got too busy watching TV, too busy with my workouts to be aware of his presence, too busy with preparing sermons to actually see God in his word and to let him minister to my heart. This is where we step back and repent. Paul says in Ephesians 4.1, walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. I think most times when we read that verse, Ephesians 4.1, we read it like this. Come on, get your act together. Do right. And I want to suggest to you that I don't believe for one second that was either Paul's attitude or hard in writing it, and it certainly was not God's. I think what God was trying to say to us is, we're better than that. He made us better than that. We don't have to live that old way, the way we used to live when we were not of the kingdom. But now he's brought us into the kingdom. He has taken we who were orphans, and he has adopted us in. Or another uh, way of looking at it, he has grafted us in. He has made us different than what we were. We are a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We're not the same anymore. And so when he comes in, he says, walk worthy. He says, I have made you kings and queens in my kingdom. Walk with that in mind. Walk with that dignity in your heart. Remember who you are. Who you are is his. In yourself, you're right. You can't know the dignity of who you are. You can't know your significance until you first know your insignificance. Without him, we're nobody. But with him, we become somebody. We like to say humility says I'm nobody, but that's not humility. Because then you're diminishing the price that God felt was due for you. The fact that he thought the life of his own son the blood of Jesus Christ is the only price it could fairly pay for you to buy you back from the dominion of the enemy ought to say that he considers you of some value. That doesn't mean you walk around with a big head with pride and arrogance. It means everything you do is no longer a badge of accomplishment. It's a badge of acknowledgement. Here is one more thing, God, that you did for me. You made me who I am. Having looked at how engaged God is in every aspect of our life, we repent for living less than that. For saying, I can do it my own way. W by the way, when I said the word repent, for some of you, the word repent immediately caused almost like this visceral reaction in you. It's like, oh, that's a bad word. It's like when parents say to kids, naughty. You know you've been bad. Repent. But I want to suggest to you that that is not at all how the Hebrews or the Jewish people understood the word repent. The word repent, which we know in the Greek, is metanoia. It means a change of mind. But that's not how the Hebrews knew it. They knew the word teshuva. 
The word teshuva means come home. Come home. In other words, you've been going this way. Stop. I'm not mad at you. Come home. Come back. It's pictured perfectly in the story of the prodigal son. He had to come home, not just to his father's household. He had to come home to his father's heart. That's what he's saying to us. Ignatius says, this isn't about you've been bad, cut it out, now regret it with all your heart, grovel, let there be an issue of desperation. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, come home. Come back to who you were made to be. Repent. This is the part where God shows us where we have been trying to live life outside of him and drawing from other sources what he intended that we would only get from him. Anytime that you're getting life that he promises to you from another source, you're in trouble. And we need to come home. Number three. Uh, this one was harder for me because, uh, by the way, just as an aside, that word teshuva, you guys can look it up, T-E-S-H-U-V-A-H, actually occurs over a thousand times in your Bible. That's how important this is. Love doesn't appear that many times. Grace doesn't appear that many times. Money doesn't appear that many times. This is a major thing with God, all right? Um, the reason why this third one is harder for me is because um, his explanation is so long. I've tried to, it was long. So I'm going to just call it reasons. So we've had retrospective. Uh, we had repent. Now we have reasons. This is where we ask God to show us the what and the why. What is there in me that so easily devolves back to that stuff? What's going on inside of me? When I was less than who God made me to be, when I was short with my wife, what was going on in me? Why did I act that way? Why did I overreact? What's going on in me that causes me to live inside of my own life instead of in his life. It says we are in him. Do you know that the uh, word in him, that, that little phrase, in him or in Christ, occurs 25 times in Paul's writings. 25 times. In him. We're not alone in this. We are in him. He is in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory, but we're also in him according to Ephesians. So if we're in him, why are we trying to live out of ourselves? What's going on? Ignatius basically says it's possible that there are things that have gone on in your life, lies that you have believed, baggage that you're carrying that actually become the driving force for junk in your life. It's, I'm not going to take a lot of time with this because it's exactly what I was trying to demonstrate with that little experiment last week. Your life is a container. Into that container has come some stuff. It gets filled up awfully quickly. And sometimes the stuff that fills that container up is not God's heart for you. It's lies that have been spoken over you. Um, my dad, God bless him, uh, he, he became a Christian. His life changed. Gone home to be with the Lord August 13th, 1996. But in that time period from the time of his conversion until he went home, he continued to change. But I can remember on one occasion where dad, uh, again, he was, uh, at that point, he wasn't a Christian. Uh, he drank heavily. Uh, he was a functional drunk, really. 
alcoholic, uh, just had to have his drinks, and he would say, I can handle it, and he could. He would still go to work, but he was still a drunk. And when Dad drank, he became mean. And he put me in the hospital one day, uh, just out of his own anger. And when we came home, uh, we had the one of those three-seater station wagons where the back seat is faced the back door away from the driver's seat. I'm in as far away from Dad as I can get. He brings me home from the hospital where he put me. He's in the driver's seat. I'm in the way back seat. I can't get out until he opens the door, though. So I'm just stuck there. And he says from the front seat, you know, I love you, don't you? And I'm thinking, yeah, right. But here's my point. Some days went by, and I, I just did what I normally did. I avoided Dad because it was safer that way. Um, not because I was so much mad at him. I wasn't mad at him. I hated him. I, just, I hated him. He was, to me, the epitome of evil. Um, he came and he brought me one day a Reader's Digest. Didn't say a word. He handed it to me and he pointed to an article. The article was about a father who couldn't say the word love. He couldn't say, I love you to his son. But he did love him. And one day his son was out in the pasture and had some trouble in a cow or a bull gored him or something. I mean, this was years ago. I don't even remember. It was something like that. And he gives me the story to read. And I'm sure in his mind it was to show me that he was like the man in the story, that he really did love me. He just couldn't use his words. Do you know what I took out of that? I took out of that, I'm unworthy of you even talking to me. You don't care a thing about me. You just want to shuff me off on some story that doesn't really even fit. Because the bull gored the kid. It wasn't the father who gored the kid. We believe lies. And they make us feel a certain way. And then we begin to act out in that. We begin to live our lives. As a pastor, you want to make sure that everybody likes you. Everybody cares about you. Everybody respects you. And so you begin to act in certain ways that honestly aren't born out of the heart of God. They're born out of your own insecurities. And so Ignatius says, you need to be willing to ask God the what and why of what's going on in your life. What's driving you? Why do you act the way you are? And ask God, perhaps, if he might bring some healing to you. And by the way, I've said this to you before. Uh, I just want to emphasize it again. This is not about going on an excavation survey for your life. This is not about digging out all the junk and the layers and the generations of junk just to see what you can find. This isn't about finding out that the doctor spanked you too hard when you were born or that your pet didn't love you as much as most pets do. That's not what this is about. This is about allowing the Holy Spirit to bring up what he wants when he wants and not until. Because if the Holy Spirit brings it up, it usually means he wants to do something there. So let him decide. Don't let, don't let your spouse decide. Let the Holy Spirit decide. Number four, real quickly, I've taken way longer than I intended, I'm sorry. Number four, reconciliation. This is where, because we have repented, we've gone home, and we've asked God to bring healing into our life, this is where we begin to walk in the revel of knowing I'm forgiven, I'm accepted, I'm loved, I'm a part of his family. This is where we deal, not with performance, this is where we deal with identity. I am a child of God. I'm his. He says, you need to be willing to celebrate God's love for you. And I think we don't do that enough. I don't think we celebrate one another enough. 
I love it when we have a reason to celebrate, a party to throw, because it battles against, it combats the spirit of the elder brother who says, oh, we shouldn't be throwing parties, not in this life. Things are serious. People are going to hell all around us. I know that. So did Jesus. And by the way, they said the same thing to him. Why are you allowing them to throw a party? You shouldn't let them put that ointment on you. Wait a minute. The poor you always have with you. There's always going to be need. But there's a right time to celebrate what God is doing in the life and heart of people. And you ought to celebrate what God's doing in you. I'm not talking about pride or arrogance. I'm talking about an awareness that God in his goodness has saved you. I've said to you again and again, if you get too far beyond the wonder of that, you've gone too far. That your sins have been washed away, not just covered over. They have been washed away as far as the east is from the west. This is where we recognize that uh, we are his and he is ours. It's like where the writer in the Song of Solomon starts out, he is mine. That's what this is all about. How can you serve me? How can you serve me? By the end, he says, I am my beloved. And yeah, he is mine. You make that progression of awareness to it. And it's where we can receive his celebration of us. The scripture says in, um, somebody's going to correct me, I know. Zephaniah, I think. Where he dances over us? Yes, thank you. I was stuck between Zephaniah and Zechariah. Um, Zephaniah 3.17, she said. It's where God dances. The word that that he uses there is he twirls around madly. But one of the interesting things, Bob Mumford years ago, who's one of my favorite teachers, says that in the Hebrew, that word also has another component. That component is he whistles over you. And what he said, no, I'm sorry, it wasn't Bob Mumford. It was Judson Cornwall said that. I want to give due to whoever it is. One of those. I think it was Judson. Judson says, do you know when a guy whistles at a girl? You know, that wolf call whistle? That's what God does over you. He loves you so much that when he sees you, he goes, wow. That's my son or that's my daughter. That's what this part is about. Reveling in his revel of you. Number five, real quick, is prospective. This is where he ends and he says, I couldn't find another R, I'm sorry. Somebody will help me. Um, This is where you look ahead for the next 24 hours or a week perhaps, maybe even a year. And you say, God, what would it look like if over the next 24 hours I actually lived hyper aware of you? If I became more aware of the invisible, than the visible. If I set my affections on things above, what would that look like? And God help me to live out of that. So it's actually where he says you've looked back at the last 24 hours. You've dealt with it. You've seen God's handiwork. You've actually repented. You've come home to who you really are. You've worked through some of the issues of healing that might be necessary that become impediments or speed bumps to it. You've come to the place of knowing who you are in Him and you're celebrating that and receiving His celebration of you. Now He says you make plans for the future. You say, God, this is how I want to live my life. 
I don't want to just every day have to look back. I want to every day. Having looked back said, I did better at finding you in the everyday. Finding you in the mundane. In the ordinary. So, you're going to leave here today. Uh, most of you drove a car here, right? Most of you? Not all. I'm looking at Dave. I don't know if Dave rode in a car today or not. Um, Dave is our like our walker extraordinaire. But um, you're going to go out to your car, and you're going to hope that when you turn that key or you press that button, it's going to start. How many of you, when your car starts, say, thank you, God? How many of you have ever had your car not start? And when it finally does start, aren't you glad? He's saying, find God in the everyday. Find God's goodness to you every single day. Five simple steps, but I believe if we take them seriously, they can make a difference in our lives. Would you stand with me? Next Sunday, I am going to begin a new series. This will probably be the shortest series I have ever preached in my whole life. It will be four messages. But here's my challenge to you ahead of time. Some of you will know this. Don't call it out. Be good students. Don't call out the answer ahead of time. Be quiet. That's what the teacher says. Shh. Go back and search out who said, did God say? Don't answer. Who said it? And where does it occur? And we'll talk about that next week, okay? Did God really say? All right. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for time together as your family. Thank you for the privilege of having your word. And Lord, I also thank you for the fact that you have put a deposit within the hearts of different men and women that we can then glean from. And I thank you that you did such a work in Inigo Lopez back in the 1500s that we can glean from it today. Lord, help us to be the kind of people who live more and more aware of you and give thanks for your involvement, your engagement in our lives. Help us to live that way. And where we fall short, help us to come home. Not merely to grovel in regret, but to come home because that's your heart for us. You're not trying to beat us up over it. You're saying, okay, you failed. Now come home. Lord, we believe that's your heart for us. And help us to learn to be a person who is so loved that our Father, even in heaven, wants to celebrate when we come home. Help us to live that way, Father. Bring deep healing in our hearts that out of wholeness, we can walk with you. We pray your blessing upon each one. Lord, let us go out of this place more aware of you. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you today. And pay attention to his blessings, both great and small.